guys. Welcome back to another episode of Liberty Dining Dish. I'm Michelle, and I'm missing Ken, my co-host, my partner in crime, my better half today. But there's a reason. This episode is a special one, and we're taking a quick deviation from our normal programming. Um, on the off chance that the interview that follows might include spoilers. I didn't want Ken around. Um, as you guys know, he's only seen part of season one and he's in for a whole lot of drama. <laughs> um, but I just didn't want to take the chance on ruining that for him. Uh, anyway, something that Ken and I want to do through our podcast is connect with other fans of Queer's Folk from all over the world. And we want to invite people to join us to share their opinions about the show. Uh, some of those opinions we will agree with and some we might not, but it's all in good fun. So that being said, I'm going to share an interview interview I did with Nichelle, a Queer's Folk fan fiction writer and professional author. She was so gracious to sit and chat with me. And uh, what I love about her, other than her Brooklyn accent, is the way she analyzes and talks about these characters like they're real people. Because to me, they are. (laughs) And I mean that in both the borderline crazy way and also that each character on this show could be a real person in my life. Um, So just a few things before I hit play on the interview. If you know Nichelle's writing, you know that there is one character that she cannot stand. (laughs) And there is one that she's pretty ambivalent about. Um, If you don't know, it will be made pretty clear pretty soon. But here at Liberty Diner Dish, we respect your right to your opinion. Um, I also want to let you know that at the end, the audio and internet gods were not smiling on us. Uh, But to clarify, Nichelle is talking about other writers of fan fiction when she's talking about their handling of the characters, specifically talking about Justin. And uh, yeah, anyway, I hope you enjoyed the interview and we will be back with our regular programming on the next episode. Check this out. Okay, um, so I am on with Nichelle today. She is a... uh, Queer's folk fan fiction writer, but also she's a fiction writer. That's how she makes her living, which is such a cool career. <laughs> um, and I'm excited to have her. Uh, I've read several of her stories, her uh, fan fiction stories, and um, reached out to her and have been stalking her ever since, <laughs> trying to get a hold of her to get her to come on the show and be with us. So this is her first of what I hope will be many appearances. So, Nichelle, thank you, and welcome to Liberty Diner Dish. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Definitely, this is, it makes me feel like a real author. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are a real author. Okay, so let's just start at the top. Tell us how you got into Queer as Folk. Um, I was working, you know, at Cablevision, like I said, um, which is now called Spectrum. Everybody mm-hmm. knows it as Spectrum now. Um, but it was... It was a crazy, crazy, crazy time in my life. I needed some stability and I was, you know, I needed that kind of mental escape that we all look for when we're watching TV. And just so happens that the commercial came on for Queer Folk. I was watching something on Showtime. I don't remember exactly what it was, but um, probably Weeds or one of those. But um, the commercial came on for Queer Folk. And I was like, well, this looks interesting. My dad was coming in the room he's like are you actually gonna watch that and I was like yeah I was like, <laughs> yeah. he was like well all right now understand my I'm a daughter of two preachers yeah. so there's <laughs> that but my parents have never been like normal quote unquote preachers they're very real and down to earth they understand that there's all walks of life um we have a transgender person in our family who's Literally, Corey is one of the best people you'll ever meet in your entire life. So when it was time to make that transition from Keisha to Corey, it was my parents he talked to. 
So it was, it was, um, so we've always been exposed to it in some, we've always been exposed to this lifestyle in some way, shape or form. And they were never judgmental. You would think that they would have had a whole lot to say. Yeah. But really they were like, no, we'll just deal with it. We'll deal with with your, you know, your family, their family, we'll deal with it all. And that's what I really appreciated about them. So when it was time to watch the show, my dad, so funny, God, I miss him. I really do. He passed some years ago, but he's like, all I need is an hour for them to just stay asleep and I'll, I'll not complain the rest of the night that they're up. (laughs) And he was like, okay, I'm going to hold you to that. And so began my journey with this wonderful show and getting to know the characters and really taking on board how it was written. And for the time it was written, I think it was way ahead of its time. It's literally what's happening now as, as we're knowing it to become mainstream. Yeah. But really this is the way people live. Um, I, what drew me to it the most was that it was a relationship because I always say a relationship is between two people and you know, it's just all the outside factors that really change it or develop it into what it is. So, I mean, there's always the the quote and unquote homo uh, relationships versus the hetero relationships, but that's that's inaccurate because we all know people like these characters right. in our daily lives. You know, so your sexuality doesn't define the relationship; it's just between people. Yeah, and I felt like the show did such a good job with that. Like it made you could the genders were important and the fact that these were homosexual men, the relationship being in friendship being portrayed, that was important, but you could almost remove that and insert, you know, any person, you know, we all have those kind of people. Yeah. And so that's what I say. Relationships are the same across the board. It's the players, the different people and their personalities and the compliments or the people who cause dissension that makes them different. That's what shapes and creates and colors them. And so it's been, it, yeah, we all got people like them in our lives. And y'all know how I feel already about the infamous M person. <laughs> okay, so let's talk first impressions on some of these characters. <laughs> Give me just kind of um, like where they are when we meet them at season one. So part of what Nichelle and I are doing, the reason we kicked Ken out of our booth and put made him go sit somewhere else is because... We're just doing kind of an overview of some things for the first few episodes of season one. And so we'll try to avoid spoilers, but just in case we slip up, we didn't want him to hear anything because I've told you guys before that he's only seen part of season one. Yeah. Uh, So with that being said, let's talk where we meet them at season one in those first three episodes, which are so important. What are some first impressions from you on, on our Liberty Avenue gang? Okay. So Let's start with the narrator of this whole thing, which I still can't understand why of all the people they chose, Michael, it is one of those. (laughs) But the fact that he even now I have, like I said, I've been around all types of people my entire life. The one thing as a fluid, because I'm heterofluid. So as a fluid woman, I know good and hell well not to go into the back room. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Why do you go in the back room except to see sneak peeks? We all know what goes on in the back room. It is like the equivalent of a BDSM sex club, in yeah. my mind. Because uh-huh. you don't just happen up in the BDSM club. Now, yes, I know about those personally. I'll admit <laughs> that. Um, you don't happen up in there if you're not there to play. 
You understand yeah. what I mean? So why would you, regardless of if you hungry or not, I don't, man, <laughs> he was have tired. a focus. <laughs> yeah, he was hungry and tired. And go, go suck your thumb in the corner or somewhere and let the man <laughs> do his business in relative privacy. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it's in an open forum, mm-hmm. but you know, so I had a problem with that. Like immediately, I'm like this clingy little bum. But then you have Brian, who is a character that I relate to the most. Mm-hmm. Again, I am not shy about who I am. Um, in terms of that, and Brian and I are li- literally. I could have been literally. I was Brian at a time <laughs> in my life. Um, was she a hoe? Yes, she was. Hey. <laughs> I can admit that. Um, but I was a hoe with purpose. <laughs> so, and Brian is one of those who's just, you know, he works hard, he plays hard, and you see that during the first three episodes. And, you know, rightfully so. Um, he's earned his reward um, in terms of being able to play as long as he wants, whenever he wants, as long as he gets his, as long as he does grown men things and gets his behind up for work the next morning. What are you complaining about? Yeah. Um, then you have Emmett, who that's my spirit animal, man. I, know. I love <laughs> I love me some Emmett. My Emmett honeycut. Yeah. And don't my Emmett and don't call me honeycut. I love I love <laughs> yeah. some Emmett. Um, Ted I relate to because at the time that the show aired, that's where I was in a lot of my life. Um, not feeling so sure about myself mm-hmm. um, in the situation I was, I mean, I was in a situation that I knew absolutely nothing about. I was in a job that I was not happy with, basically living within my own closet because mm-hmm. at the time I was also a writer, but had never, had, didn't have the courage to release my book. And so, you know, as honest as Brian and Ted's misunderstanding of personalities were, I kind of relate it to them because here's Brian who wants Ted to live his best life and here's Ted who's afraid to take that plunge. Yeah. So I related to those two on that kind of level. Um, I love, I mean, I really felt like the writers could have developed Emmett, Brian, and Ted's friendship more than they did. Because at that time, they were more like-minded than Brian and Michael. But um, then you have Lindsay and Melanie. They should not have stayed together. Even before the even before the show aired, they should have broke up. Honestly, <laughs> I really feel that. Um, first of all, you don't go and have a kid against your part. You know your part that don't get along with this man. Why? You yeah, gonna- that decision. Like you, I'm happy for what it brings out of Brian, but just in their relationship, just like in Mel and Lindsay's home, that exactly. should not have been the choice for the father. <laughs> exactly. I I mean, come on now. That's just. That's selfish. On a, a, so to me, yeah. it was selfish. And Melanie didn't have the balls to check her. And yet at the same time, I understood Melanie because of the dynamic that Lindsay is, that Lindsay has where Brian is concerned. That pedestal they put him on is just so, mm-mm. Yeah. You know, it doesn't allow for him to be a person. But now we introduce the nice little, the little Sprite walking down. Sprite. <laughs> Because he looked like a lemon lime sprite in the middle of a desert. Yes, he did. To Brian. Yes, he did. We have, we, and to Justin, who has no preconceived notions of who Brian is and what he's about. And all he knows is that 
he's 17 and wants to get late. I mean, all of us at 17 have some, some well, unless you are a late bloomer. <laughs> I knew I was a dom at 16. So yeah, no room to judge here, you know, but in that moment, I think Justin had an intrinsic kind of uh, almost like a gift of discernment to where yeah. he mm-hmm. to trust Brian to take care of him yeah. in that moment, even though he was a stranger, you know, but it's just something about that whole fairy tale look across the across yeah. the aisle. It reminds you of that look. People say I looked across the room and she was there or he was there. In my mind, I can't really understand that. However, in watching how they portrayed that, I could see it happening as clear as day, and it was yeah. very natural. Yeah. So that's my take on the characters for, oh, and Debbie. Let's say, what can I say about Debbie? Debbie is a wonderful woman, uh-huh. except, except, and there's uh-huh. a big, that was in big flashing lights with Bob Wire and Cerebus the dog guarding it, except <laughs> when it comes to Michael. So, other than that, I, I really enjoyed her. Other than that, when it comes to Michael and other people's children. Yeah. Let's say it that way. There's a, there's a, you coddle Michael, but you diss other people's children. I have a problem with that. Yeah. But other than that, you know, a lot of what she said was, was spot on about people. Yeah. You know? And she, you know, she was there for people and she was a very welcoming mother figure for them in some ways. Uh, but I like the, I guess, kind of the conflicting and even the complicated portrayal of Debbie's character, because that's very honest, you know, and for all of them that have their frustrations, that's what made them more real and relatable and honest. Exactly. Uh, oh, and yeah. then let's not forget about my Vic. I love Vic. I, yeah. I really, I love Vic. Vic is, Vic yeah. is like that. He's like that, uh, He's like that older, you know how you go, um, not necessarily to nursing homes, but if you ever speak to elderly people, they mm-hmm. have so many stories and anecdotes that will actually get you through life. Yeah. And it's good, solid, sound advice for where you are in your life. That's who Vic's character was to me in a lot of ways. He's like my favorite <laughs> uncle. Yeah, I'm so glad for the inclusion of Vic. And then another one, a sleeper favorite, is Daphne for me. I love Daphne, too. Daphne's my chick. If I have a girl best friend that's not my my sister, my younger sister, Daph is that chick. She's just, you know, she's just very, she's like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. She's that one to actually put the, put the big sign with the flash to point out Sarah the dog that you don't want to cross that line. Bruh. <laughs> Get your yeah. back, you know. So I love the fact that she encouraged Justin while also mm-hmm. being the voice of reason in a lot of ways for him. Right. She was very mature for, you know, yes, she had, I mean, she was 17, but she had some real wisdom about her where really? you could see her becoming an adult how she was going to grow and become an adult. Yeah. Well, and I think even that, you know, uh, it says a lot about Daphne. And of course we love her, but it says a lot about Justin too, because the kind of people that you surround yourself with, you know, and the kind of people that you gravitate to. And so um, while sometimes he might lose a little bit of that because he will have on these, um, you know, love or rose colored glasses. Yeah. uh, That's when she has to bring him back. But then they share that kind of maturity that, you know, being kind of older than their age in some ways. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, they were they were the misfits, so to yeah, speak. They were. Daphne in a school that's predominantly Caucasian, and then Justin being the only known gay in, right. his, in his school. 
so there, there's that camaraderie too. I, yeah. I know that some people think you can't have a, a best friend who's the opposite sex and at the same time the opposite sexuality. And that's such a myth. Again, it's about yeah. people. It's right. about people. You know, yeah. I never understood. I never understood those. I hate gender norms and stereotypes. I really do. If I <laughs> want to go fix the car, who are you to tell me I can't fix the car because I'm a girl? Exactly. Yeah. GT. <laughs> oh, out of here. Get your, get your a out of here quick. Yeah. Find yourself somewhere. And set it down, as my mama say. Set it down. <laughs> Okay, so let's continue talking about first impressions. What do you think it was about Justin standing there under that light that made Brian, you know, seek him out when he was ready to retire, go home for the night? What it, made said, him- it was that air of innocence and that it was basically, like I said, it was that drink in a desert. It was uh-huh. that one drink in the desert. There was something so different about Justin in that moment. First of all, it was not Brian's quote-unquote known type. Mm-hmm. Secondly, again, there was that look of innocence. So with that look of innocence, it would be a good, it would be a really good possibility, about a 90-10 chance that Justin would know Brian's reputation on the avenue. Yeah. And then there's also, I think there was also that feeling that, okay, this kid is in danger. Why is he even out here? So if he's go- if he's hell bent on getting laid, then let me do that so that I can at least know he's cared for, you know, because there are some deviants out there. You know, there's some people out there that portray that are literal wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, and I think that Brian saw Justin possibly being led to the slaughter if he yeah. stayed out there too long. Yeah, well, yeah, I think so, too. Um, yeah, because, like, what happens before that, which it it's presented as just a, a joke kind of when the guy's like, Oh, well you can come with me. <laughs> you know, but, yeah. You know, I'm like, eh, eh, uh, hell no, bro. Run away. Flee <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <Please>, quickly. <laughs> Don't you do it. You know, yeah. but it was kind of funny. I had all sorts of reactions, even to the side characters. Yeah. You know? I, yeah. They, yeah, they had a lot of um, good use of cameos and just like little, you know, guest stars and guest appearances and whatnot. Um, <laughs> So let's um, talk some more about that, uh, I guess, that first night. Um, so Brian says has a quote in there that uh, is a very quintessential quote, which I'm going to mess up because <laughs> I should have wrote it down. But basically, he's saying that um, no matter who you're with, like, I want you to remember this, that no matter who you're with, I'll always be there. And so not getting into everything that happens in the the rest of the season but um do you think that's like standard pickup line for brian or is that something that was special and unique for i justin? believe that was special and unique for justin um yeah. first of all no matter who we are we always remember our first whether it was a good experience or a bad experience um in this particular case i think it was brian really wanting to justin to remember the entire night not just that one not just that one instance, yeah. but the entire night. The fact that they shared an in, they shared intimacy where Brian never did with his best friend. Yeah. Quote, unquote. Um, for him to tell Justin about his coach. Right. Back when he was 14. You know, that's, that's big. That's big. You know, mm-hmm. I still laugh at that whole shuttle launch comment because <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. I've had to ask that my dad on self. But um <laughs> yeah, you know, that whole baby face. No, I want to see ID, bro. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but um I there was a level of honesty that mm-hmm. was done in that moment. I don't believe anything in that that scene was really contrived. Yeah. It may have come off that way in some ways because of Justin's inexperience, but I don't believe that anything that Brian was anything but himself in those moments. Yeah. Whether it's as the stud of Liberty Avenue or whether it's as just Brian Kenny, I think there was just a pure level of honesty between the two of them, both spoken and unspoken because body language can tell you a lot. Yeah. So, um, I think it was one of those. It wasn't something that was just some pickup line or something that I believe he would say to anybody else, mm-hmm. you know. Um, one of those, he, he did want to be remembered in a way. I, yeah. I believe that. I believe that too. Um, well, just because the whole night was so bizarre, you know, if, you, if you're Justin, that's such a bizarre night, you know. Yeah. And then, because uh, to not only go back to the loft but then to go get this call and then you're going to the hospital and then there's this baby and then <laughs> this raggedy ass best friend who's trying to <laughs> raggedy behind cock blocker who's trying to keep me getting the business the yeah. business into brian kenny you know yeah we ain't yeah, gonna have that. yeah. <laughs> I, you know and that's something that to me like that's why i'm like Michael noticed something from night one about Justin, because if it, you know, usually like, yeah, we know that he would be frustrated with anybody that Brian would take home, but not to that extent. I don't feel like, you know, because yeah, we see, I mean, he's walking to the back room. Like it was nothing like, Hey, Brian, let's go. Like completely didn't even acknowledge the guy that was there. You know what it is? I really, and I, I, I think I've, I've written about this quite a few times. Um, it was the fact that Justin was so out of Brian's normal pickup. Michael could fool himself into thinking that the brunette, the dark brunette guys, with the exception of the muscles and height, right, that Brian would normally pick up, that he was in their place. Okay. With Justin, there was no way in hell, no way that he could insert himself into that fantasy. That's true. Yeah. It was the, it was the beginning of the end and mm-hmm. we kind of saw Michael's reaction to it. He's like, "Oh no, this kid, no." It wasn't that he was too young like Michael said. Yeah. It it because there was all these underlying hints and foreshadowing that it wasn't necessarily Justin's age that was the problem. It was Justin himself. Yeah. You can picture yourself tall, dark and handsome when Brian's tricks are tall, dark, and handsome, but short, blonde, and cute, not yeah. so much. <laughs> yeah, no, I can't recreate that. Just the fact that he brought him with him to the hospital, and then, um, oh, yeah, you know, like that. And so he's in the car, and then, like, still went, took him back to the loft after all of that. And then, even that next morning, when he shows up, and Brian's like, still not done with him, <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, and, and Michael has to has to see that, but which what we see just a couple episodes from that uh, pilot is he wakes up and there's a guy who accidentally happened to spend the night and he immediately is like, OK, you need to go. And yeah. so, you know, so Michael sees even this the next morning, he's still lingering around. Yeah, yeah. 
I still have a problem with Lindsay bringing Gus over that time of morning, too. <laughs> yeah. Let's just go and put that out there, too. I'm going to put that out there, too. I might, I have, ooh, child, there are so many problems yeah. that I have. Those two quote-unquote like, best friends. Emergency just... mean nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> emergency is I woke up and wanted to come to your house. That's exactly. Emergency. emergency is I got a paper cut and only you have the Band-Aid. What the <laughs> hell? Get your behind to a drugstore. You'll work in the door. Go buy your own damn Band-Aid. Get the hell out of my house. No, but, no. They want to the end at the loft, yeah. Yeah, they, they wanted to see, bro. I, I will stay with this to the day I take my last breath. They wanted to see all of Brian's goodest, honey. Yeah. That's <laughs> what that was. That was a ploy yeah. to see the goodest. Yeah, it's a very interesting, and we will, you know, have to keep watching to see how it all plays out, but it's a very interesting triangle or just situation with those three, like the Venn diagram of those three, I guess. Um, yeah. Like how, you know, of course, we know Michael has his sights on him, but then Lindsay does, but doesn't, but does, but doesn't. Oh, that child, look, let me tell you about Lindsay, I could tell, was by from just the get-go. And the reason I could tell Lindsay was by from the get-go was anything she said, wasn't the fact that Melanie was there. It was the way she gravitated or she lit up when Brian came in the room and it wasn't because yeah. of us. Yeah. See, there's a lot of underlying stuff there. And you have to be able to pick out certain body language yeah. in order to get to the real of things. She's confused or she's hiding the fact that she's bi. Yeah. Why is anybody's guess? If you're what the misconception about bisexual people is that they have a choice in what they're attracted to. That is so literally not the not the issue bisexual people and this is for everybody listening i want you to really hear this and take this on board bisexual people are not attracted to the gender of the person they are attracted to they are attracted to the personality they are attracted to the heart they are attracted to the core of a person that if you put that same person in another gender they would still be attracted and with Lindsay. Lindsay is in a relationship that she should not be in. Melanie is a complete and utter lesbian. That's not a problem. Yeah, no, not at all. But what the problem is, is that you're lying to your partner about what you are. And that's where my problem with Lindsay comes into play. If you are attracted to both genders, be honest. And that's, that's outside of queer folk. That's across the board. Be honest about who and what you are, period. Yeah, I am, uh, you know, and I think Lindsay felt, she was trying to find a way to kind of live in both worlds, you know, to in a way to have Brian, but be with Melanie. Yeah, so that's, that, that's why Gus yeah, was born. Exactly, so that's how we get Gus, you know, and so, but I think she didn't realize what a big mess she was going to make by doing by doing that. Did she make a mess or did she make a mess? Yeah, she made a big mess in doing that, you know, and, you know, even there are a couple episodes, you know, after that where you kind of see it on her face and she's like, she realizes that she's put herself in a bad spot. Yeah, and the then whole finally- situation was broken from the beginning. So why yeah. would you bring a child into it? So, you know, where Melanie and Lindsay are concerned, even if Gus was there, they should not have stayed together. Regardless of anything, they should not have stayed together. When they broke up the first time on set, they should have stayed broken up. (laughs) 
you have some have some strong opinions about um I about, really do. About I Lucy. really about I really do. I really have I, strong opinions I about love, the two of them. But I love a show that can generate strong emotions. <laughs> yeah. I love they that. definitely did. And analyzing everything, like I said, and analyzing everything and being who I am and having the life I've lived, because I've lived so much prior to my kids and even after having them. And seeing, I mean, it gives you a different perspective. It It really gives you a different perspective of why i mean i never understood why be miserable and have and stay together for the sake of children i mean who who should grow up in that if you're not happy skedaddle call it quits be happy with somebody else if that's your choice and meanwhile co-parent the responsibility you have to that baby but i do think that um again what we talked about these just these broken characters these broken portrayals like think whether it's a bad situation or not we probably know people that are in situations that they should have left long time ago. <laughs> yeah. And every time one of those broken situations calls me, I look at my caller ID and throw a tantrum. <laughs> okay. So um, let me switch gears for a second. So um, one of the things that Brian says in one of the early episodes to Justin that just breaks his heart is that he doesn't believe in love. So, but we know that he has these relations, these friendships, very close friendships with um, Lindsay and with Michael, and to a much lesser extent with Ted and Emmett. And then, you know, there's Debbie. So, what do you think he, um, how do you think he understands love, or what do you think that is to him? Is that, is he just not making the distinction between relationship love and just like friendship love? Or kind of what do you I think? think? I think that he considers it almost like, um, literally like concrete shoes i mean if you see a mobster coming to you with concrete shoes with concrete you know to run like hell (laughs) and so you know i think it's one of those situations i mean i think in the kind of something in his life causes him to not believe in the true power of love it it always comes with with michael and with Lindsay. it always comes with stipulation it always comes with him having to at least this is my observation. It always comes with him having to sacrifice something, some part of himself for yeah. them to unquote love him. And I think he said it to Craig. That's not love. That's hate. You know, it's mm-hmm. one of those kind of things. If it's, it's those conditional elements of the love that he knows, quote unquote, that really shapes him to say, okay, I don't believe in love. You know, it's one of those kind of things with, we all love to Mike to Brian comes with a condition. Yeah. And and it's a self-sacrificing condition. Exactly. Very self because even in the hospital, when he sees Gus and we know that there's clear he feels some type of bond with him, he um tells Lindsay, like, if you need any money, let me know. But so he only knows how to like offer some type of action or some type of sacrifice. Um yeah. And let's that represent love for him. Yeah. So he, I think he understands loyalty and he understands like serving somebody you know, or sacrificing for somebody. But yeah. Um, and so, because I don't think he's had a lot of relationships where nobody expected anything but love in return. Exactly. Now yeah. we're just, we're Gus, we're Justin and Gus are concerned. I think that that was his first glimpse of, of it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with Gus, again, a baby is born. He has no preconceived notions of what or who his father is, um, as in relation to everybody else. 
He just knows that there's a big man holding me and I feel secure. You understand what I mean? With Justin, it was a lot the same way. Right. So for those two to show up on the same night within Brian's life, I think that was very significant. I even think that at some point during the night, in fact, where, in fact, it's when Brian comes out of the club and Michael says, finished so soon he said yeah I was bored yeah I think at that moment I think it was in that sentence alone if I'm going to analyze it which I have I think in that sentence alone that's where we see that Brian is really becoming discontent with the existence he has right and so that's what I think really made Justin stand out to him because here's something so different so refreshing so so not the norm mm-hmm. that it would cause him to, to look twice. Yeah. Yeah. And this is with Gus, you know, mm-hmm. here's somebody yeah. with no preconceived notions of who I am or what, with no expectations of what I'm supposed to be. Right. And, and he would love me just because. Yeah. You know, we talked about this last time we, we talked, um, but uh, we were saying that, on that first night with Justin, when Brian, because Justin didn't know him, Brian could have been anybody. He could have pretended to be this crazy leather daddy or whatever. He could have pretended to be whatever because Justin did not know him. But what he chose to be was purely himself um, in in a version of himself that arguably nobody else has seen. Um, And so I thought that was a very huge, um, a very huge moment uh, in the show, you know, where you were talking about, yeah. Absolutely. I think it, it strangely enough, you notice it. You notice the growth. See, this is a problem. I, I noticed growth even during that first season. Mm-hmm. Um, there were little key. There was a lot of foreshadowing as to who Brian was growing to be during yeah. that entire season. Um, same thing with Justin. Same thing with Justin. You could tell yeah. who he was. You could kind of get glimpses of who they were going to be once they came on out on the other side of whatever turmoil they were going on that was going on within themselves. You can kind yeah. of tell where they were being led to go. Um, same thing with Ted and Emmett with Michael. Mm, yeah, well, I've said that clone. He was just the clone of whoever he was with that's, at the time. If he was with I Brian, said. he was with Brian. If he was with, you know, yeah. um, if he was with Emmett, he was a clone of Emmett. Or, you know, it was just like, yeah. dude, well, develop your own personality and stick to it. Yeah, that's what I said. I think it might have been in the episode for like 107 or 108. Or maybe I've said it several times, but Michael doesn't know who Michael is. And so, yeah. like you said, he just mimics whoever is there, which is a which is something that children do. Like, that's how tr- children learn behavior. And so they, uh, they just mimic things, mimic people. And um, it kind of, I've mentioned his arrested development before, and I feel like that's just kind of another thing that falls under that, him yeah. just kind of mimicking behavior, mimicking personality or whatever. He just drives me crazy. I'm going to try to steer us away before we... <laughs> I'm still looking for redeeming qualities in this fool, and I ain't found one yet. Um, I haven't found one yet. I'm still looking for those, I'm still looking for the proverbial needle in the haystack. To where yeah. I could appreciate some quality about him. Um, yeah, not there yet. Not yeah. there. No. You know, I don't know about you, but I've seen, and I'm going to finish it one of these days. I've seen part of the British version of this. And so I know how that one 
goes. I love British TV because yeah. I've got more dry humor, a little bit more sarcastic. <laughs> but, yeah. but anyway, uh, so yeah. I've seen that one and I know how that one goes with the Brian and Michael characters. And so I know oh. that they kind of set this one up that way. And I've been wanting to talk about it, but I don't want to go like way down oh, into honey. it. Cause I, it but It wouldn't have flown in America. It no. would not have flown in America. <laughs> We're no. just going and ground that plane right now. Yeah, it, yeah, no, it would, it would not, it would not have flown with me. I, <laughs> Honey, cow, cow lip would have seen pitchforks coming their way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I know people know what we're talking about without us having to say it. <laughs> so I, I would have been writing letter. I would still be writing letters right today, and the show yeah. has been on. I, I would like I would burn my DVDs. <laughs> yeah, no, don't want to. That that wasn't gonna work for me. Another one in there would have probably rented a plane just to write over their house wherever it is. You yeah. asses, what the <laughs> hell would you think? <laughs> I definitely would have. No, nope. yeah, but uh, so another one that's in there is um. Ted and his crush on Michael, which actually makes sense to me because um, I don't think it should have worked out. I'm glad it, well. I'm glad it didn't. Yeah, but uh, I would have had to spank Teddy. Yeah, but I see what makes, well, what what made Ted go, because he was just, you know, just kind of like the boy next door kind of thing. It felt easy, and so what I was telling Ken, and I think he initially was was not agreeing with me. I think he came around to see it. Was I think that was Ted's version of settling, and not to say that as a slight against Michael, but I think that would have been Ted's version of settling because here's a person I already know. We're already friends. I don't have to try to like put myself out there at Babylon to get to him. So it was you easy. Make, you make yeah. a very good point in that in that respect. I think in Ted's mind, he's like like you said, it's the boy next door. So in and all Ted sees is that Michael is pining after Brian and Brian is not appreciating it. Yeah. So really Ted might know their history, but he doesn't really understand the dynamic. Yeah. And so to him, it's, he doesn't see that Michael has more control over Brian than the other way around. Really? So yeah. all he sees is one thing. All he sees is the innocent version that Michael presents to the world. Mm-hmm. Whereas, the rest of us, as the audience, if we're really looking, we see the underhanded tactics. We see the tether, the actual tether that Michael uses to pull Brian back into into a box and to put him back up on the pedestal, almost like a collectible, where he thinks Brian belongs. He considers Brian his. So Ted is only seeing one side. He's only seeing that which is shown to him. He doesn't see all of the underlying dynamics that are happening there. Yeah, which makes sense because of where Ted's at in life. He's very, you know, eyes kind of on his own stuff or eyes down, you know, he's not looking out at the big picture. Um, Yeah. Okay, so one other thing I want to get into before we let you get out of here. Um, In your writing, uh, what are some things about the characters that are, just kind of core to who they are, to their personality that you try to highlight and stick to when you're writing? Um, because of the way the show was written, and I say this very loosely in a lot of ways, it, Lindsay, I'm very ambiguous about. As you can see, I'm very on the fence with her. Um, in, in some ways, she has good qualities. In others, not so much. Um, with Michael, just I'm still looking for that one redeeming quality. It's not there yet. I'm, I'm looking... <laughs> 
but we're I try to put Brian I never agree with writers who dumb down Justin's intelligence or use the fact that he's young to um, not so much cover flaws but to play up his flaws as a young person I never really agree with that dynamic yes he's young, yes he's going to make stupid decisions um, I'm sorry, I'm older, and I still make stupid decisions. But they're his. And, you know, the difference between Justin and Michael, to me, has always been accountability. Mm, that's a good point. Justin is willing to say, hey, look, I was wrong. I was stupid. I shouldn't have done this. I'm just, you know, he's willing to do that. And he's willing to apologize. Whereas Michael, on the other hand, will hide behind an excuse or behind Debbie. Um, there's a difference between, or he's, he's, here it is. He'll step on somebody's toes and say, I didn't mean it. But then that same person will not hold Michael accountable for what he said that hurts their feelings. Whereas Justin don't get away with that. Yeah. And, and not that I think Justin would ever want to get away with it because of the way he was raised. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I try to make them. I try to make Brian and Justin equal financially because then their relationship can grow more. Yeah. It can flourish the way it was meant to. Right now, there's a dis- in season one, there's a disparity because of Justin's financial situation. Right. I mean, I know affluent families who have been putting away for their children's college funds since they found out they were pregnant. Yeah. I don't doubt that Jennifer and Craig did the same thing. Yeah, Jennifer looked on top of things. <laughs> Exactly. However, I do believe Craig had control of the money. Oh, for sure. So as a result, as a result, Jennifer wouldn't have been able to say, hey, Justin, here's your money, your trust fund. Go do go live your life. It would have been up to Craig. And we know how Craig was. Um, Craig needed to child. I know sewer rats that have more (laughs) food and class than Craig Taylor. Yeah. But um, I really so in my stories, in my writing, I put them on an equal footing so that each character can grow the way they need. Um, that's my goal. That's my goal. If it's going to be about relationship, let it be about the relationship. Justin isn't the type that wants everything handed to him. He's never no. been that way. No. He's got goals. He's got dreams. He's got, you know, what he needs is guidance on formulating a plan. Right. And so I try to I try to really highlight that particular kind of that kind of dynamic. If he doesn't have if, if he does if he needs help, he will ask. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. Um, but he picks and chooses what he asks help for help for, you yeah. know. And so I I can really respect Justin's character in that respect. I mean, it's it's a lot like me. I don't ask for help unless I'm actually at the end of my rope and need it. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's not necessarily something to be proud of, but it is a part of my personality. Yeah. Um. And so I I, I play to their strengths, and I allow them to grow and develop within them. He's always been outspoken, so I don't make I don't make Justin one of those who are, are timid. Who's timid? No. Yeah. No hell no. He's not timid. At base, he's not still a all. man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's not. He's not a female. He's not a female. And yeah. even still, females don't do that. Listen, I'm one of those females that don't do that. I don't simper. What the hell is simpering? <laughs> I don't do that. No, I tell you what it is. You yeah. know, I tell you 
what the real of it is. And so I let him develop his own personality within the story. I know it sounds weird to someone who's not a writer, but they, you know, honestly, they are invasive. They do talk. The characters, the story does talk. It, and that's why I try to make it to where it has a level of authenticity. I, I, take, I take Nichelle out of all of it. I take Nichelle, the author, out of all of it for the most part. And I let the characters speak through me. Yeah, if that makes sense. It it sounds kind of weird to somebody who doesn't do this regularly, but mm-hmm. it's one of those where those thoughts pop into my head for a very specific reason, and it's what needs to be said, and I I make them as honest as I can. Yeah. What about in in um, writing uh, maybe Emmett or Ted or um, Mel or any of them? I love I love developing those characters the way they were meant to be developed. Um, that's not to say that Cowlip did a poor job, but because of time constraints, I'm going to say it's because of time constraints. Yeah. And the fact that you only have 20 seasons, I mean, 20 episodes a season. Yeah. That to me, the characters weren't, the characters and storylines were never fleshed out completely. Yeah. Um, well, it, yeah, there was no time to fit it all in. Exactly. There were some storylines that should have been actually finished. But it was they were touched on and then it was moved on. Yeah. And I so me, I work hard at finishing out those storylines of the way they could have played out had there been but time and inclination to do so. Yeah. Could have, they could have really developed into very core. They could have developed into a core um, base for Justin and Brian. Yeah, they could have. Now, I'm leaving Lindsay and Michael out because they have their own issues that they really needed to work out. And. Lindsay, like I said, Lindsay needed to be in a place where she could be honest. Yeah. And Michael needed to be in a place where he has nobody else to depend on but Michael. Yeah. And I, so I do these things. Um, I Like with learning to sleep in the bed you made, that's where they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, but in somewhere only, but in Time's Up, Lindsay wasn't the villain in Time's Up. Michael was. Uh-huh. Um, but after that, it's like, you know, some things about Lindsay have been bugging me, so I play those up in my work as well. You know, those are things that needed to be fixed that never were. There was no yeah. time or inclination to do so. When we get to the um, the wedding episode, I'm going to have to talk to you about that. <laughs> oh, child. I can't. I won't go Honey, into it now. <laughs> ever. All I'm going to say is if ever Calamity was a person, it was Melody and Lindsay in that moment. (laughs) Okay, well, um, that's most of what I have. I mean, of course, I have more, but we'll have to do a a part two. So I need your promise that you'll be back. (laughs) I will definitely be back. Just let me get through this whole tragedy. Right now, I'm living a Greek tragedy called Moving. It's bad. I could write a whole entire book on the tragedy of this whole thing. Oh, this is just a tragic situation, a tragic and never ending situation. But, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, let me get through that. And I will definitely, I'll definitely chime in again. You know, I don't mind at all. And I, I really appreciate you inviting me to join you today and, and talk about my feelings about this awesome, awesome. Even if I think in some ways it's incomplete show. Um, Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like there's so much fodder. There's so much room left for us to yeah. get another season. <laughs> there is. 
But yeah. in the meantime, we all have fan fiction, and thank exactly. God for it. Okay, yeah. speaking of that, tell us where we can find your stuff, both fanfic and real-world stuff. Okay, my real-world stuff is on Amazon.com. You can find me under Nichelle Wellesley. Um, also, keep a lookout because I will be working on another real-life. It's a, another fiction in a different genre, and I'll be working with my sister on that one. It's actually a Christian fiction thriller, which should be really interesting because that's—I don't think that's ever been done. Yeah. But as far as fan fiction goes, you can find me on kineticdreams.com, and you can also find me on Ao3, which is archive of our of our own. I have several work on there. Some finished, some are in the process. I try to update in both places so that no one misses an update from me. Yeah. Um, still writing. I have nine open whips on the fanfic side and I have six open whips on the professional side. So y'all just keep me in. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we could just yeah. call me a literary schizophrenic and have done with it. I'm working my, I'm working as fast as I could type. Um, strangely enough, even now I don't have writer's block. It, if it wasn't for moving, I'd be at this computer like day and night just belted out chapter after chapter. But um, until I get this under control, and I mean under control, once we go to closing, I can do what I do. So y'all definitely keep in touch. Stay tuned. I'm not yeah. going anywhere. I'm, I'm still here. I'm still around. Yeah, and we're going to be honored. <laughs> as soon as we find out she's unpacked the last box, we're going to be calling. <laughs> yeah, trust me, the same day that I move in, after the last box is unpacked off the truck, that same day, my computer will be up. I told my mother already, we have to have internet service immediately. I cannot afford to go to Starbucks. I got the, I got the right. Well, I appreciate what you do um, just in expanding the universe for us. That's kind of what I love about it. It lets me, you know, stay in that world and with those characters for a lot longer. So I appreciate that. And also just good luck. Congratulations on all the success that you had this far as a writer and just Hope that that all continues. Oh, uh, but yeah, we were so happy to have you on. Thank you so much. My my ultimate goal was that I keep growing as a as an artist because that's what a writer is. We're artists, and um, you know that I keep growing and keep changing and keep evolving. I'll never be perfect, no matter what <laughs> I do. Um, even though I'm a perfectionist, this is what yeah. I battle, and so I know that I'll never be perfect. But striving for perfection is. It's both my joy and my curse. And as long as I'm bringing work that you all want to read, and it's from my heart, you know, and these invasive behind characters, as long (laughs) as you guys keep reading, I'll keep writing. All right. Well, don't go anywhere. I'm going to stop this, but don't go anywhere yet. All righty. Well, there you have it, folks. Thanks again, Michelle, for sitting and talking with me. I look forward to doing more things like that in the near future, um, hopefully with Ken by my side next time. All right. Well, like I said, we'll be back with our regular programming on the next episode. Until then, see ya. Bye. Bye.